Hey everybody, what's up? It's Trent McClellan with a brand new episode of the Generators Podcast. What is shaking with you wherever you're listening to this from? Uh, I'm recording this introduction in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada, Earth. Uh, it's a uh, Sunday afternoon here and a uh, beautiful day. Big old blue sky with a few clouds out there as I look out my window here. And um, I gotta be honest with you, I am looking forward to going out there and being amongst the people. That's right. That's right, folks. I have been in quarantine for two full weeks. And uh, as of uh, this Monday, the 21st, I get to go outside with the general population, you know? This is my Shawshank Redemption, okay? I am Andy Dufresne, just chiseling away here, pockets full of concrete. I got to crawl through a pipe, and I am out to live my life happily ever after. And I am excited. I am genuinely excited. It's a... um, I don't know how many of you out there have had to self-quarantine for two weeks. Um, and the reason why I did it, of course, is because I you know, live in Calgary for six months of the year. And then we record 22 minutes here in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And they have the Atlantic bubble, you know, where all the Atlantic provinces are in a little bubble here, little dome, if you will. And so when you come in from the outside, you have to do two weeks of self-quarantining. And uh, so that's what the, uh, the old T-train here had to do. And uh, I got tested uh, just this past Wednesday, and that came back negative. So I tried to go, hey, well, if I'm negative, can I just go outside now? And they're like, nope, and locked the door and walked out. So anyway, um, I uh, served my time, and, uh, you know, it's it's a weird thing to do that because I don't recall ever in my life a time when I didn't go outside for two weeks, like just – I. You know, you just never in my life, I don't think. I mean, I wasn't really grounded as a kid. Uh, you know, no outside contact at all. No outdoorsness, you know. And uh, a couple rough days, not going to lie to you. A couple days where I was like, okay, uh, enough of this condo. Enough of these walls, you know. And uh, so now it's over. It's good. I can I can see the light at the end of the tunnel, and I get to see my work colleagues tomorrow with a bunch of COVID protocol that we have to get used to with the new season coming up this year. So we're all happy to be working and grateful to to do another season, of course, in these crazy times. So um, looking forward to that. But uh, if you're out there self quarantining, uh, it's a bit of a grind, isn't it? Isn't it? And, uh, but it's good. You know, you get to go inside yourself a little bit, ask yourself some questions. Why did I do that thing? Why didn't I do this other thing? Who was I when I was 25? Who am I now? All this stuff you do when it's just you. And, um, I did pretty well though. I tried to focus on not eating out. So I didn't order out once, no delivery, no takeout, not once. I made every single meal or I had shakes here and, uh, I had workout equipment put in the condo for me. So like just some of those block weights and uh, like a yoga mat, a foam roller and some and a resistance band. Excuse me. And um, so I just tried to work out almost every single day. I take one day off a week and then work out the other days. So skipping rope as well. Started skipping 
And uh, get this, folks. Get this. Okay? Down six pounds. Six pounds. Also, probably a big reason why, no booze. Not a drop. And in this condo right now, as we speak, I have a full bottle of red wine and a full bottle of rum. And I have not had any of it. None of it. No beer. Nothing. Okay? And I think that might, uh, might be the reason why. T-Train's feeling a little slimmer here, you know? So uh, that's it. I wanted to make sure I didn't just green light everything and feel bad for myself. I'm like, oh, I'm just going to order out, you know, fish and chips every night and uh, I'm going to sit on the couch, you know, and just walk around pizza boxes all day. I just decided not to do that. And uh, it's worked out. So hopefully I can keep it going once I'm allowed back out in the world, you know, that I don't just go mad. The one thing I am looking forward to, I thought about it here in Halifax, is I'd like to go to the top of Citadel Hill and just look out at the city, you know, in my kind of Andy Dufresne moment, you know, and then and then an older black gentleman will just kind of walk alongside me and join me and I'll go, you know what, Red, it's glad to see you. Let's just have a drink here and look out over the top and not speak of what we both experienced in prison. But anyway... Um, that's, uh, that's it. I'm looking forward to getting back out there. I uh, hope you guys are well. I hope you're all safe and doing well. And, uh, you're hanging in there in these crazy, crazy times that we're living in right now. Um, I want to, uh, give props to my team for helping me out with the podcast over the last bunch of, um, last batch of, bunch of months and years for some of them. Uh, Jake Hirsch, my manager, um, Donovan Deschner as well for uploading these things every single week. Um, Carolyn as well for reaching out to guests for me and Christine as well for helping with the new uh, artwork and stuff. So got a great team that are helping me along the way and I want to give a shout out to those fine folks. So anyway, going to set up this episode of the old podcast. My guest today is former Calgary Flame, former Toronto Maple Leaf, Mr. Matt Stajan. And uh, we did this one via Zoom, via, via, I don't know. Either way, we did it through Zoom. And uh, Matt was a great dude, man. I mean, we'd never actually met before, but uh, we, we, we got along quite well. And, and he was a great guest, very honest, told me a lot about his time in the NHL, um, what goes on behind the scenes, uh, had an inside scoop on what it was like in the bubble for the Calgary Flames and talks a little bit about what uh, what feedback he was getting from the current players about what that's like right now. Um, he tells a great story about his first game in the NHL and how that came about, and uh, I think you'll re- you'll really enjoy that one. Um, and uh, kind of you know the mentality of of being an NHL player and the things you have to kind of have to deal with on a day to day basis. And um, yeah, just a really really good interview. Um, like I said, some of the best ones I think that some of the best episodes I've ever done are the ones that. People are just authentically themselves and let us in to their world. And uh, Matt definitely did that. So, um, yeah, sit back. Enjoy this episode of my conversation with Matt Stajan. All right. Joined by Matt Stajan. Again, it's a theme of this podcast of people of a certain age. We have to navigate technology and eventually we have uh, figured it out. So well done. (laughs) (laughs) 
it's uh you know it, it takes time there's no, there's no shame in that no shame in it you know it's uh it's a thing it takes time over you know kids know more than we do now that's what embarrasses me like a 10 year old will come in and go ah, i just press this button <laughs> <I'll be fine. laughs> yeah, i'm still challenged with it but, uh, you see how that's right man. it keeps you sharp something to learn you know um how you been man what's what have you been up to uh since the uh, world has shifted how how is the stage and family navigating all this craziness we're good. We, uh, yeah, we're living in Calgary and, um, it's nice. The, our oldest is back in school now and, uh, yeah, uh, hockey starting up. So we're starting to have things to do. Um, but yeah, we were pretty much, you know, on lockdown and like everybody else trying to entertain. We have a two year old and a five year old. So we were, uh, busy with that. That <laughs> was fun. <laughs> nowhere to escape you're just like oh, okay is there are they going to school anytime soon nope nothing on the horizon just gotta wow uh, more arts and crafts more popsicle stick houses i guess um so you've been in calgary now how many years uh we moved here 2010 so yeah it's been a decade since uh since we moved here we used to uh go back to toronto uh or where we lived and we had a house because I played in Toronto for the summers, for the off season, um, for about two, three years. But then in 2013, we just, we made this our home. We didn't, we, we went back to visit, um, yeah. but we, uh, we made this, you know, our full-time spot for, for our family. And um, other than living in Germany for a year to play hockey, we've been here. It's wild, man, because I, um, we taped 22 minutes here in Halifax. So I live in Calgary too, right? For six months of the year. And then I come here. And uh, I was talking to a friend about this the other day. It's like, man, you try and find some stability in your life. And then when you're packing up your stuff and now you live somewhere else for six months, it's almost like like the same as for what, what you guys would have had during a season. And eventually you just want to lock down to one place where you're not packing bags. And you don't have to like make plans for two months down the road. Did you get to that point where you guys as a family were like, let's just stop packing shit up and moving, <laughs> moving stuff around? Exactly what happened. Well, because you'd come here for the season and then, um, you know, you go back to Toronto for the off season, uh, but you're still moving. Um, that's four kids. And then we, uh, we got to a point where once you have kids doing that is, you know, it's hard enough just to go for a few weeks to visit people. Um, so, you know, and then we did the whole European adventure for was seven months. I think we ended up being in, in Munich, um, with, with a newborn and, and a three-year-old. So that, that after that, we were like, we're, we're done. We, we, haven't, we haven't done much uh, since then. It's nice to just have that stability for sure. But it all comes with, with, uh, with what I did as, as a profession and I wouldn't change it for anything. Dude, uh, I've had a few friends that have gone to Germany and spent some time. I've never been. I've heard amazing things, particularly about Oktoberfest. I'm not going to lie to you. What was, uh, what was your time like over there? Yeah, it was fun. Um, we, we went there, you know, we got there in September around this time a couple of years ago. And, and yeah, so it was Oktoberfest within a month that we were there. The only hard part was we did have a, a two month old. So um, it was a little bit challenging getting out, especially my wife getting out. Um, yeah. The big halls that they have. and uh, But it's it's very much like um, a stampede. Right. Uh, where they have the tent set up and, you know, they have the grounds with, with the rides and you now you can do stuff during the day with your kids. And then they have, you know, the, you know, all the main beer companies or, you know, have their tents or you know, banquet halls, whatever you want to call them, but it's way more organized than a stampede, right? You have, they have tables lined up everywhere and, and you know, you're assigned your seat and they just come around with the, 
the beer and um, it's a party. It's I loved it. Everybody's instead of you, you dressed up in leader hosens instead of as a cowboy, um, and uh, they know how to have fun and and uh, there's a lot of shaming for for people who want to. <laughs> <laughs> want to drink you know, uh, you know one of the, the things i remember there's obviously chants and music going on um you know it's like you know festival but uh you know someone got a little proud as many people do when they're when they're drunk um you could stand on your table and uh you chug a big a big uh, schoon of, of beer and um and everybody pretty much chanting while you're on there and if you don't you're getting beer and stuff thrown at you it's it's pretty incredible like if you're not used to it like the first time you're like whoa that just happened but uh it was fun it was fun and I, of course it was easy for us because we we were there and on a team so we went there and you meet your new teammates and that's where you go so they kind of show you the ropes so we were very fortunate to experience that um but it, it'd be fun to go with a bunch of buddies for sure yeah that sounds like you would wake up the next morning on the lawn of some strange german family and they're just yelling german at you and you are just the morning sun is waking you and you're just i sorry i don't i'm canadian i don't know how i got here and where's my shoe and i'm missing shirts exactly. <laughs> and, and those germans they're pretty harsh to begin with so <laughs> you don't want to be in the wrong spot but uh yeah it, it was fun well, dude, that's how I knew uh, COVID was, this was a serious thing. When Calgary decided to cancel Stampede, I went, oh shit, this is real. Because they had, they, Stampede went ahead during the flood. They were like, we'll just put water wings on the horses. Uh, we're going to, it's going down. I was like, so if we're, if we're shutting down for this thing, I'm like, this, this is a real, real deal here. Stampede normally powers through absolutely everything. So that's when I knew we were in trouble. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. And it's crazy just to think the whole world too. It's not like the flood was just Calgary hit and right. you know, dealt with it here and got through it. But this is like worldwide. It's crazy, man. It's crazy to think. I think all of us, nothing we've ever experienced. So. No, I know. It's a pretty unique time. Um, get into some hockey stuff here. So uh, Jeff Ward just announced as the, uh, the interim tag has been dropped, he will be the head coach of the Calgary Flames next season. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? And what, and, and what do you know about Jeff Ward? What's the, what's the inside inside track on that yeah well i know the players love him uh you know he, he came in and obviously tough circumstances but he was around the team being the associate coach and uh you know the guys respect him he, he knows um a lot about you know he's a has a teacher background so he he definitely um he knows how to how to read people and and i feel like it's a really you know it's the it was the easiest hire for them to make um he was there he did a good job um and you know the players like him, and then they can rally around him. And and the thing I, I know about him is he he leaves a lot of um, what he does. You know the players kind of govern themselves in the dressing room. Obviously, you know you can't um, in any job really in today's world you can't have your fingertips and, and control everything. Um, you know you can guide and, and lead in a way, and, and um, you know but at the end of the day you gotta kind of let things take their own way and lead them in the right way. And I feel like he does a good job with that, where he gives you know, the, the dressing room and the players the responsibility to you know, uh, make things work. And, and um, you know, I felt like they had a really close group and they played really well in the playoffs uh, up until you know the last couple of games there where, where things obviously didn't turn the right way. But for the most part, I don't think, unless you're going to go out and spend four or five million dollars on you know, one of these coaches that are out there, um, you know, I don't think you could go wrong with, with, with who they hired. And I, I like the decision they made. Yeah. It's interesting because, um, 
you know, I, I follow a lot of soccer, you know, slash football, or whatever. And it's like you hear about these these iconic teams like Manchester United or Arsenal and these big clubs, and you think about the manager coming in with this big personality, Alex Ferguson or whoever it was, that they would just have their finger on the throats of the players all the time. But when you hear the players talk about it, they often say the dressing room was run by the core leadership group. Like they decided the culture, the atmosphere of what went on, how training went. Um, and I think it seems like NHL is now kind of going more to that model where it's more players don't want to be just yelled at and screamed at 24-7. You need that leadership core to kind of decide this is the vibe of our team. This is the vibe of it. Do you think things have changed since when you were in the league? Has, has that coaching style changed now where it's more player friendly, do you think, or no? Or does it depend on the coach? It, it definitely has changed where I feel like the coaching's gone. Uh, you know, there's still a coaching of hockey, but you're coaching human beings and, and that aspect as well, just the way the world is now and how it's changed. Um, but it still depends on the coach. Um, you know, I came into the league and, and Pat Quinn was my coach and he was, uh, you know, he was great. He kind of let the players do their thing in the dressing room and, you know, he was a motivator. Um, and then I had Paul Maurice who, who was kind of a bit of both, but he, you know, so some majority of the coaches I've had have, have let the dressing room be, um, because once the coaches are, are around, you know, if, if they're especially the tough coaches, if they're going to be really tough, on, on, and most of them are, and they need to be, you got to hold guys accountable. Um, but you need to give players their space to be together, and and that's where the that's where coaching and the, the relationship with the players sometimes goes sour. And you see that's where there's so many coaching changes because um, when things do go wrong and coaches try and control everything, and you know, once the players turn, it's it's hard to get that back because um, you have you know, 23 guys in the locker room that, that are really um, the guys who are playing and have to produce and the coach isn't treating the right way. And I'm, I would never say players don't try, but just the mental side where um, if you're not playing for someone that you respect and, and like, um, there's still that a little thing in your head that um, might not, you know, make you at your top peak performance. And that's going to be, that's the difference in the NHL. It's, it's so close, all the teams and all the games. So, um, that's where I see it, and um, for sure that the the styles, and we're seeing more so the coaches. It's it's less in your face than it used to be, um, but you still need a little bit of that. I feel um, you're just seeing way less of it. Where you know some some not even too long ago, the head coaches who who is it was their way or the highway, uh, and if not, you're you're on the outside looking in. That's definitely gone from today's game. So do you think that concept of uh, a coach losing the dressing room actually exists? Do you think, not that, like you said, players fully quit, but it's just not that 110% buy-in to kind of go through the wall for that guy? So you're saying that that's a real thing? Well, I think it's, it's a loaded question in the sense that I think with any coach, you're going to have guys in the room that like them and guys in the room that don't based on how they're getting uh, utilized, you know, personally and, and what they're bringing to the team. Um, as soon as there's that disconnect within the players, both the coach, that's where things kind of turn sideways. Because, you know, myself, I was in my career, I was, you know, a fourth line guy the last three, four years of my career. And, um, you know, so I wasn't playing as much as I wanted to. And you always want more. We're all alpha males. Um, but as soon as a coach, you know, starts treating a certain group one way and then the other group's getting treated the way they want to be, and that becomes a problem. Um, you really see it. And I was a guy who was, who at the end of my career, I just wanted to win. You know, I took a step back. I'm like, you know what? I'll try and be the best fourth liner I can be, you know, but I'm going to try and make our dress room be the best we can be as a group because you want everybody on the same page. Um, and if you can have your, your guys who have lesser roles feel 
um, like they're making an impact and, and, you know, they get that, that buy-in from the coach and the coach gives them a role. It just goes a long way. Um, but as soon as there's a disconnect and, and then, you know, when you're not winning, there's always blame. And, um, you know, we hear stuff on the outside, but in the dressing room, you know, you, you co- coaches are defending themselves. Players are defending themselves. Uh, it becomes a problem pretty quick. So uh, the best coaches know how to read the players in their room and, and they have players in the room that kind of help, help out as well. And they use that, right. You, you can have guys in the room that are trying to do the right thing, but you got to use those guys to, to relay your message. And, um, you know, it's all about being a, a team. So if everybody's on the same page, it's pretty simple. It's going to work. And um, when it's not, that's when it goes sideways. It's funny. Yeah, uh, I heard that uh, Joel Quenville was pretty famous for, for short practices and, and giving guys plenty of rest. And I think it's counter to that old school thing of driving players into the ground and we got to go hard. And like, you know, you lose, you lose last night, you know, eight, nothing. And you show up the next day and it's bag skate. And it's like, you know, that probably wears thin too after a while. Do you think more coaches have kind of adopted, like, you know, guys are tired, they're physically tired, they're mentally tired. And knowing when to take your foot off the gas is probably just as important as, as knowing when to actually hammer down. Do you think that's true? Definitely. Uh, you know, there's just way more science into rest. And uh, we've even heard of sleep doctors, you know, the past decade coming in. And, um, you know, it's the old saying, rest is a weapon. And uh, for sure, there's there's times where, where a team needs a little bit of a kick in the ass and it needs a hard practice because of, you know, because you, you know, as, as a player on a team, even fans know when they're watching when guys aren't fully engaged, you know, you need sometimes need that, but um, you're not getting it like it used to be. Uh, like if you lose four nothing to, you know, this team that's in first place, but you leave it all out there back in the day, coaches would still think you played bad, but there's so much more dissection of every game now with video and, and analytics that, uh, you know, unless it's really warranted and, as a player, you know when it's warranted. Um, you don't see that as much. So that's another part of the game we've, we've seen change. And, and uh, practice times have gone down. Days off are a lot higher than they used to be. And, um, you know, it's just trying to get the most out of each individual um, and, and how to prepare them the best way. But at the end of the day, it's up to the player themselves. Um, the, the coach can control when they're practicing and and, and what they're doing on the practice. But, um away from the rink the players got to take care of themselves and pick their spots and and that goes a long way into the, how things go for your team and and holding each other accountable um rob kerr brought me down to a practice i think it was maybe three years ago glenn gullison was a coach and i was watching uh, watching practice and it was the day when gullison took his stick and just chucked it up in row 58 <laughs> <laughs> and the stick, you can just, it's dead silent. And you can hear the stick just kind of bouncing amongst the chairs. So I turned to Rob and I go, Rob, do you think I should go get that stick and bring it down to me? He's like, I don't think you should move. I think <laughs> you should just stay here. And I said to Rob after, I go, is that like a premeditated thing? And he's like, I don't know. He's like, you know, later on he talked to Glenn and Glenn was like, no, it was kind of like, you know, just drills were sloppy and pucks weren't going tape to tape and you, and you do that. But I think that's a thing too. You probably can only pull so often, right? Like you can't, you can't be that guy and give that reaction all the time, or I guess you guys probably tune it out. Like, th- does that stuff work when you guys are in a practice? Did, 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 will that change the, the quality of a practice in that kind of moment, or it depends? Yeah, I think it depends on the individual, but I was on the ice for that, and um, <laughs> we weren't playing well at the time. Uh, and, and then, you know, we won a game. Uh, what happened was we won a game, but we weren't playing well, and then the next practice was loose and sloppy, and, and it happened. So, 
probably wasn't premeditated that he was going to throw a stick into roll whatever 27 it was. <laughs> but, uh, he definitely was, we were probably on his radar um, and he probably knew we needed something to, you know, to maybe wake us up a bit that we can't just, uh, you know, coast through these next bunch of games. So it was a way of getting our attention, but uh, as a player on the team, you know, we had, we had fun with it after we won the next few games and that next practice, we, uh, we actually, I think we put one of our, I think Johnny Goudreau's buddy was in town and we dressed him up and put a helmet on him. He went and sat in that seat for practice. <laughs> we had some fun with it after, but at the time, for sure, we were uh, we were put on notice. But um, and, but we won the next night, so we could have some fun with it. And, and um, you know, you can laugh at it, but hey, coaches uh, have their, their their ways to getting to players. And, and that's definitely effective when it comes from a guy that, that you know, that's not his personality to do that all all the time so it was something different that we saw from Glenn there and um, it did uh, help us get going a bit we ended up playing on a big big rally there in the next month so um, that's crazy the things like that that have happened uh, in was that the same uh, season as well where uh, you guys were on a train ride I guess in Ontario is that the one where Glenn got a bucket a couple buckets of beer back to the back of the train and kind of said like let's let's sort this shit out like let's what, what is going on here like that's a brave move because if that backfires, you know what I mean? If it's like now you still don't get the turnaround or whatever. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Well, it, it was all the same season. So I think that was a little earlier and we were kind of like win-lose, win-lose. Um, and then we were on a road trip. We were in Montreal and we got beat, I think like 5-1 or something in Montreal. So we took a train from Montreal to Ottawa and it was dead quiet. You never take the train either. It's supposed to be you know, a little different than, than the usual – routine uh and we were just on there and um it was usually we'd have you know a case of beer at the back of the bus after a game you know after a game you kind of you know you gotta relax a bit um but we went on the train and, and it was there was no alcohol <laughs> in our in our little apartment where the players were um and no one was really gonna go ask at that point because we didn't play well and um, i think the post-game press conference wasn't pretty because of course as much as players say they don't hear about that stuff, you know what's going on because um, yeah, yeah. you're talking to the media too. So, yeah, mid-trip he came and, and kind of, yeah, he just threw a couple cases of beer and um, said, figure this shit out. And we did, and then we went on a run. I think we won like 10 of 12 games or something, even more. I think we yeah, tied a right. franchise record, yeah. and it, it led us to the playoffs. So, it, you know, I think there's, there are moments when you look at, at – at every season, um, especially when you have successful ones that that lead to a team going on a run, um, and that was it that season. Um, so the stick throw happened just before that, and then that train ride was <laughs> soon after. So we needed a few few that season because uh, we didn't have the best start that year. A little love and a little uh, tough love from time to time, right? You, you change it up and keep it interesting. Um, I, uh, I want to talk about your early career. So I was digging on the old Matt Stajan Wikipedia page there and uh, <laughs> and uh, found out that you spent some time in St. John's, Newfoundland. How long were you with the uh, with the Baby Leafs there? Well, I, uh, I played a full season there. Um, I actually played one game. So I, I finished my junior career. It's kind of a crazy story. So I finished my junior career, lost in game seven, and I signed my first NHL contract with the Leafs. Um, so they flew me to St. John's uh, for the last game of the season uh, in 2002. And so I played the last game of the season in St. John's, and then they didn't make the playoffs. So I was actually 
out on George Street after the last game. Uh, just played my first goal game. Um, I had lots of fun. Just signed a contract. Uh, it was a late night, of course, as the year end. Of course. And, um, the next day, I uh, it was Saturday. It was a Friday night game. It was Saturday, and the Leafs had had clinched the playoffs. They had a game Saturday night, and it meant nothing. And I woke up in St. John's, like, and I didn't have cell phones like we do now. So I had missed the call on my hotel phone from from the assistant GM Mike Penny at the time. I was supposed to meet him for breakfast, but I'd missed I'd missed the call, and St. John's got me. And uh, <laughs> it was the call that you have a flight at one o'clock you're playing tonight for the Leafs but I, I had no clue I wouldn't have been out and doing that if I knew I was playing my first <laughs> game so, so I flew uh afternoon you'd never fly day of a game so I had to fly in from St. John's not a short flight landed in Toronto at um five o'clock for a seven o'clock hockey night Canada game um because none of the vets wanted to play in the Leafs they were starting to play up so I, it was my opportunity I was like perfect so I made sure I got some uh some sleep on that flight I landed and went straight straight to the Air Canada Centre in Toronto and, and played my first game. Uh, I literally walked in the room. It was actually good to happen that way because, you know, I'm in the room soon. So I had Belfour like you know, four days before I'm playing junior hockey. So it was good to happen that way because I grew up a Leafs fan and, and that's what you dream about your first NHL game. But I didn't have a lot of time to think about it. It kind of just, yeah. you know, I woke up. I wasn't feeling the best. I was hungover and, and you know, on the flight to Toronto and, uh, yeah, and there I was, and I just and I scored in my first like second shift. I got a you know partial breakaway and and was able to score and uh, you know kind of yeah helped my career kind of get started, uh, my pro career get started, and it's it's kind of funny how how that happened. So I played in three leagues in in, in less than a week, and um, there was a lot of end of year stuff going on with with partying with with teammates, and um, before you know it, I was in the NHL, and uh, you know I was a black ace for that playoff. Uh, run with the Leafs. I think they, took, they lost in the first round, but I was, I was around the guys and it, it really was experience that, that helped me, uh, you know, start my career the next year as a full-timer. So you, so the next season you, did you spend, we were kind of up and down a little bit with uh, down to the farm, back up, down to the farm, back up. That's that kind of the deal. Yeah. Well, I, I made, I, I made the team out of training camp. I made the Leafs out of training camp. So I, I played 65 games that year. I got uh-huh. sent down for a week around the trade deadline. Um, but I didn't get back to St. John's till the next year. Okay. The, the NHL lockout happened. So the full year got missed. And because I was on an entry-level deal, um, I was eligible to play in the AHL instead of sitting out. So the Leafs signed me to St. John's to play that lockout year. So I got to play 80 games, a full season with St. John's, um, which was a lot of fun and, and great for my development as well. Um, so I got to experience the rock, uh, as much as anybody. It was, it was, it was a fun time. Yeah. The old, uh, you guys would have played a mile one stadium, I guess. Was it back then? Was it mile one? Yeah, it was mile one. And, uh, it was, it was a great setup. Like we, everybody lived, you know, walking distance to a majority of guys, uh, lived walking distance to George street. I think we only had like two or three guys on our team that were married. So it was a very young team as the AHL is now. Um, so we had a lot of fun, uh, and okay. we were the only team. That year, out east, we were the only AHL team out east because you know, all the other teams had moved. So we were on like, we'd be home for a month and then we'd go on a month road trip and then we'd be home for a month. And every time we played a team, it would be a series. So a team would fly and you'd play two games in three nights. So it was kind of a cool experience, but uh, it was a lot of travel. But we, uh, yeah, it was a lot of young guys like myself. We were 20 years old and used to pro hockey, but also 
we're able to, to let loose and have some fun and, and um, you know, really actually you got to figure out and, and mature as a, as a person because uh, you're trying to make a professional career out of it. So help you pick your spots and, and have fun with it. Yeah. I think when I talk to, to athletes, there's that, uh, just that understanding of trying to figure out what you need to do to stay in the league and what you need to do to keep a job. And when you're a young player coming into a league, um, you would have been on both ends of it where you probably would have been helping at, later in your career, helping young guys as they came in. But when you were a young guy coming in, what do you think are the toughest things that people don't see, you know, the fans wouldn't see at home, obviously a speed of play and all those things, but like off the ice things, what are the things that can really be a real transition for a young guy coming in? Yeah, it's while well, you're, you're basically you're in the NHL that quickly, you're making a ton of money at a young age. Um, especially myself, I was, it helped me grow up quicker, quicker, but I was playing in Toronto. So you're playing for the Maple Leafs. You're the talk of the town. You're, you're a celebrity in that city. So you, uh, you have to adjust and, and figure out how to, you know, not go overboard with, you know, cause you see guys get lot, you know, they want to be seen, they want to go out, they want to, you know, you're, it's that new, your new life, like you're a celebrity, you're, you're the man in the city and uh, you're just a kid really. Um, yeah. Also, I think that that part, you know, I, I was lucky. I, my work year in Toronto, I was 20, and, you know, I was rooming with Joe Newendike, who was 37 at the time, and, and we had an older team. So I had no other, it was actually probably a good thing. I had no other really young guys on the team. The next youngest guy was like Nick Antropov, who was three years older than me. Um, so I, it was good. I didn't kind of have, you know, that other young guy to kind of um, get in have trouble with, is what you mean. <laughs> Exactly. We're after the, what are we doing tonight? Um, so, Monopoly again. Wow. All right. That's pretty boring. But. So, uh, you know, I th- think that you just got to grow up quickly and, and, and see so like Toronto in that market. Um, it's going to really, um, you know, end up affecting your, your play. And um, so I think people, the part that people don't see is that, you know, we're all just human beings and people, yeah, we're hockey players and we're skilled and, we're at the highest level, but it's, it's adapting to that, um, you know, off the ice stuff that, um, you know, where you, you get to a point where, you know, you kind of think you're invisible, like you can do whatever you want, right? Because you're getting treated this way. And, and at the same time, you gotta, you gotta perform. You gotta go to the rank every day. And, and in today's game, especially with social media, like you can't hide anywhere. At least I could, you know, kind of hide and, and do things. But now if Austin Matthews is out somewhere, you know, are seen by it's all over social media if someone sees them. So it's even changed even more so now. So that that's that's the part that people sometimes don't understand and, and um, experiencing that myself. Uh, uh, I, I feel like it helped grow up really quick, and I'm lucky I had a good family foundation uh, to kind of keep me grounded. And um, you know, luckily, it helped me uh, see a lot of things early. Now, Mike Commodore was on this podcast. Do you know Mike very well? Yeah, we see yeah, we see each other in Calgary uh, a little bit. He, uh, I've got two kids, and and you know, if we're, we're really busy with that, where he's kind of not in that lifestyle, so we see each other. <laughs> yeah, very different lifestyle. We'll leave it at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah very different lifestyle. Golfing all the time, uh, going off to golf tournaments around the world. I'm like, what are you doing? What 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 is this life you lead? And how do I get into it? Um, so Commodore was telling me about the very thing you're talking about, about 
when you have all this time, because he played in college, obviously, and he goes, you know, you're in each other's back pockets, like off the ice. It's like, you know, you've got roommates and you just, you always have people your age to hang out with. He said, but when you get to the NHL, because he got drafted by the, the Devils and it was a veteran team. So after practice and games, all these guys are going back to their their wives and their kids. And he goes, I'm in a hotel in West Orange, New Jersey, just like, like you know, just living out of it, even for home games, right? It's like he's just in a hotel and he goes, luckily, I could find a way to kill time that wasn't destructive. But for a lot of guys, that's a challenge. And and do you think that's a, that's a big thing, too, is just trying to manage that downtime and not, oh, I'm going to go buy a sports car and, you know, or you have a gambling problem or it's like, I'm going to do some day drinking. Like it, it's it's trying to pull in the reins. Is that what you're kind of what you're talking about? Definitely. And, and you have all the like you're getting paychecks now, too. You're getting you're making good money as a young guy. So you're like, you know, in the back of your head, if you're sitting at home or at a hotel room, like, Oh, I can go spend some money, but that usually brings on trouble because uh, you know you got to surround yourself with the right people. And luckily for myself, I was in Toronto, uh, which is where I, I grew up in Mississauga. So I had you know my group of friends that were kind of there and my family, uh, so that kind of helped me out. But at the same time, you gotta you gotta make sure you're surrounding yourself with the right people because you know there are people that that don't have the right intentions and uh, can lead you down the wrong wrong path and. So it's that decision-making, you know, at a young age that can really uh, have an effect on your career, um, you know, especially off the ice. So that, that, that's for sure true with what he's saying. And um, and it's just learning. To, it doesn't mean not have any fun. you got to have your fun. You're 20 years old. Like, you just got to pick your spots. And, and uh, you know, we always say be a pro, right? Yeah. So you can learn to be a pro and, and know what you need for yourself to, to make sure you're at the top of your game when it's coming comes game time or time to practice uh you know you'll, you'll figure it out quickly and you'll you'll have success and that's that's i've seen a lot of guys go the other way and, and it's unfortunate but um you know you only can can help uh, so many guys and then and give your own take on things i uh, i heard a football coach once a college football coach say that uh he would tell his guys like because the people you're hanging out with make sure they have the same amount to lose that you do because if you're in a car doing something and you look around, the guys that you're hanging out with don't have shit to lose. He's like, you need to get out of that car. <laughs> you need to yeah. go hang out with a different crew. And I think there's some truth to that. 100%. Yeah. And and usually it's the, the person with everything to lose that going to get all the media hype if, you know, the guy won't get any attention if it's at yeah. of Toronto Maple Leafs, uh, you know, with all this money, he's the one who's going to lose everything. He's the one. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a tough road. So what I find interesting is that I uh, I didn't start in entertainment until I was 30. Like I didn't find this career. I used to work with kids at boys and girls clubs and stuff and then went on stage the first time and was like, oh, I'm going to do stand up. This is awesome. And then it was it's a grind to try and get yourself, you know, to a certain level. But I'm always amazed by people who, especially athletes who like you go into that kind of career path really, really early in life. Like it's, it's like, you know, you go through junior hockey, it's on the radar, I'm sure for you. When did you kind of really fully commit that? Like, this is, this is it. This is something I'm really going to go for. I'm going to, I'm going to empty the tank to try and make this thing happen. When did that happen for you? When did it click? Um, for sure. I I always wanted to be an NHLer and and I committed myself to hockey probably, you know, in my teens, I was, you know, I was fortunate. My my parents and, and my mom's, you know, would always drive me to hockey school doing extra skating classes and um you know and i didn't get drafted to uh junior hockey to the ohl uh my original draft year um so i didn't even i didn't go to junior hockey as an underager so i played a year of midget which is back then was not uh 
you know, usually that, that means you're not going to go to the next level. But I, I was kind of a late bloomer in that sense. And, and even my first year of junior, I played in Belleville for the Belleville Bulls. And I, uh, I had 27 points um, in, eight, in 65 games. So it wasn't like, you know, uh, you know, I was committed. But myself, I was committed. I'm like, I'm going to play. This is my, my future. But then now when I look back, or even at the time, um, you're on a team with 23 other junior hockey players. Every single guy in that dress room thinks they're going to play in the NHL or has that, you know, wants to play pro hockey. Uh, and then there's how many teams in the league and, um, you know, and then there's guys in college. So, you know, at the time you never think about that. You just, you worry about what you need to do to be better the next day. Um, you know, but you know, when I look back only, you know, three, four guys that I played junior hockey with um, in three years of junior had played in the NHL, you know, and only a couple of us had NHL careers, you know, you know a few hundred games. So, um, I think you commit yourself, but you really don't know for sure how it's going to, what path you're going to take until you're there. Um, but I never, ever doubted myself. I think that that belief in myself, especially after getting doubted, you know, not getting drafted originally and um, to junior and, and just having some, you know, battles as a young kid where you get doubted. Uh, you know, I had that edge and, and uh, to prove people wrong and, and I believed in myself and that's the number one thing. Uh, that helped me improve and, and get to where I needed to be to get drafted. And then once you get drafted and, and once I played in the world juniors in Halifax in 2002, I made that team after, you know, not being on the radar in the summer, um, that really boosted my confidence um, where you know, I wasn't turning back. So I think, you know, just kind of, you got to play, it's not play games with your mind, but it's having the right mindset that, that you can do anything. And I know we hear that with everything in life, but that's kind of, you have to do because once doubt starts creeping in and, and um, you know, that sort of thing, you start thinking about the wrong things. Uh, it's hard, you know, to get to the best league in the world and, and it just won't happen. So you got to believe in yourself and, and have that confidence. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I, I talked to uh, Cassie Campbell Pascal about um, when she was on the podcast about sports psychology and about, her relationship with it. And she kind of feels like she wished she'd kind of done more with it at the time when she was playing. Um, when I played soccer in university and then I played club soccer afterwards at a fairly high level, I was one of these guys that played like, you know, just on raw emotion, right? Like everything was just true. Like I showed up to the pitch angry. Like, I don't know why, but I just showed up like already, like someone had punched me in the face. <laughs> and I'm like, and it's not my demeanor off the pitch, right? When I'm not playing. And I think I was, I was always on that edge all the time. And but I think I would have been a far better player if I would have been able to kind of contain my emotions and and just not let stuff get to me as much. But what was your relationship like with sports psychology? Was it something that you utilized? Was it something that you, you believed in? Yeah, I, I definitely had times in my career where I, where I leaned on it, um, especially in Toronto. Uh, I Toronto had a really good uh, sports psychology coach, Paul Dennis. Um, and I had played with his son in minor hockey, so I kind of had a, a connection with him and, and – so when times were tough in Toronto, uh, like if I was going through a little slump, um, you know, he's a guy I could talk to and, and it's just talking things through or, um, you know, there's different ways, that, you know, you got to just kind of um, psych yourself up or, or give yourself confidence because, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you're, you're in the NHL, you're, you want to play, you want to be at your best all the time, but sometimes it's not there and, and mentally, you got to keep yourself there. Otherwise you're going to have a dip and there's always someone trying to, to get at you and take that job. It's, it's, you know, that's something I'm really proud of with my longevity is that I, I 
always was conscious of that and made sure I always push. You never take anything for granted because even through tough times, you know, and there are going to be ups and downs, you, you have to push through. And, and um, so I definitely leaned on, on some sports psychologists along the way um, just to, it's not like I would talk to them all the time, but just giving me no guidelines and things to follow and, and what works for me um, going into a game or, you know, on off days, how to leave stuff at the rink, not, not kind of beat yourself up over every little thing because um, it all, it all affects, you know, your, your, your mental state and, and, and your mental state's affected. Um, physically, you're not gonna be able to do what you do best. And, and um, there's a fine line between uh, you know, playing the NHL and, and playing the AHL and, you know, after that. So um, it's definitely something I think is important. Um, it's different for each individual. That That's the one thing. I, I don't think the same thing would work for me as it would work for Mark Giordano or other guys I played with. Um, as an example, before games, I'd be more loose. I'd be more rowdy in the room uh, where Mark Giordano was, he was focused. He was, you know, he wasn't smiling. He's just that, that, um, you see what you get kind of guy, um, you know, and, and I was more of a loose guy. And then, and you find the person that is in the dressing room to make it work and, and everybody has their own way. So uh, that, that's where I think it's important for the mental side. You know, there's no right way. It's just what works for you. Yeah. I hear you. Um, it's funny. I heard that uh, Martin Brodeur used to say that he wouldn't even think about the game until he got in his car or was on the bus on his way to the rink. And that blew my mind. I was like, you know, if you've, you've got a big game seven coming up. I'm like, how is that thing not just bouncing around in your head all day, you know? And and then I realized in my own career when I played soccer, sometimes I was just I was just exhausted by the time I showed up at the pitch because I'd, I'd already been going through this stuff. Your nervous system is firing. And I was like, man, I could have just watched a movie or something, you know? Like, what was your game day ritual? So you, you wake up. It's game one of the playoff series. You wake up in the morning. Walk me through what, what a game day would be like for you in terms of your own preparation. Yeah, so for myself, I was I was more like I, I was definitely thinking about things. Um, you know, I don't think I would fully not know there was a game, but um, I wouldn't show up to the rink till two hours before. You got to be there two hours before. I'd be I'm coming two hours before. I'm not coming three hours before just to kind of you know I, that's when I feel like I got overthinking. Um, yep. you, you just you don't know what to do. Guys have routines. Some guys like in there early, take their sticks early. Um, so I was a guy that that would have my pregame meal with the guys. We'd have practice in the morning. I was kind of loose, and you go home for a nap, um, and then you go to the game. And I was just kind of get there at two, and then you start your routine. Um, but I was pretty loose uh, right up until you know game time. Um, obviously, in the there's a you know in the dressing room you're not going to be cracking jokes and and stuff right before the game. But uh, you know sometimes. Uh, Joe cracked for the games is what the team needs. So, so, so you do that, but, uh, you know, I, I was pretty laid back, um, compared to a lot of the guys and, and I had to be that way. Cause otherwise you just, you know, I lost my hair at, at 22 years old. So if, I don't know what else I could live with. Like, I got things right through. So it was definitely, uh, I'm more of a laid back guy, but there's, you know, I, everybody's different, right? It, there's guys that, you know, just they're so laid back. You need to even watch them at their missions at games. And they're just kind of like, you look at them and they're like, they're just so aloof. And you're like, <laughs> they go on the ice and they do their thing. So it works. Uh, it's crazy. The personalities and, and, and you know, the different skill sets you play with. And then the personalities they have, like you'll, you'll have guys like Jerome McKinley and Jordan who are just 
know, workaholics. They, they work for everything. And then you, then you play with the guy, play with the guy like Phil Kessel, who is complete opposite, but was so talented and is one of the best players uh, while he's been playing. So, um, you know, I just think it's it's crazy. But for me, I was I was very laid back. Yeah, I was talking to Ben Scrivens once, and uh, he, we were talking about. I think he had set a record at one point for a sh- like the most stops for a shutout at one point. And I said to him, I said, that day, did you have any inkling at all that you were going to have a game like that? He goes, dude, worst warm-up of my life. Couldn't stop a beach ball. He goes, pucks were going through me. He goes, I skated off. He goes, and then I went out, and and, uh, and that was the game that happened. And I was wondering, like, for other players, did you put any any value at all in warm-up, a good warm-up, a bad warm-up? I mean, obviously, you want to get a sweat going and get your stretch in, but, like, in terms of, you know, you're picking corners, you're going top shelf, you're like, oh, yeah, I'm feeling it. Tonight's the night. Or does that – that that means nothing in the big scheme of things? Uh, yeah, I think it means nothing. Um, yeah. yeah, like, I, there's been big practice days where everything goes in and you're just feeling and then the next day you just completely – nothing <laughs> goes right, you know? Hockey is such a weird reactive game, and um, there are bounces. Like you control yourself, and, and when you're on the ice, you have your line mates. But your line mate could be having an off day, or you know the D man you're out with, you're out on the ice with, could be having a bad game. And um, so, you know, once it's game time, just because you're feeling it, warm up with your shot or, or whatever, um, you might be playing your own end all night. Based <laughs> on right. What's going on in the game? So uh, I learned that really young because you know there were times where. You know, your, your things are going well, and then that game, you'd be minus three. Like, I felt great out there. I was minus three and you know, played awful. Like, on the out, stats look awful, right? Uh, so, I, I just – and even, like, some of the best games I've had, um, like the playoff game where, where I scored the game winner against Vancouver in the playoffs, that day I, I was I was sick. I couldn't eat anything. You know, I, I, I came to the rink just – I drink like two balls of Pedialyte. Um, you know, I just wasn't feeling good. And um, that night I, I played well. And, you know, I just think I just focused on that next shift and that was my mentality. But physically I felt awful. Right. And, uh, it's just crazy how certain things happen certain nights. And um, and then raw emotion takes over when, when you're in the game and things go well. But uh, that's, that's, that's hockey. It doesn't surprise me that you hear that about a lot of goalies who, who – uh, just as a player in warm up, when you're shooting on a goal and everything's going in, you're like, "Ooh, this might be a tough night." And they'll <laughs> shut up, right? It's just, right. it's just hockey, right? It's the way it works. So that's that, even the playoffs right now. What we're seeing with Dallas winning, I, I don't recall many games where they've totally dominated. They had some good games, but I feel like they're uh, they're opportunistic and, and playing the right way, but they're not playing special. Right. So you're saying uh, that that was Matt Stajan's version of the last dance, Michael Jordan's last dance, where you just just held up by Scottie Pippen. Just dude, just get me to the slot. I'm just going to put this thing top shelf over the shoulder. I was in a bar that night when you scored that one, dude, and the roof erupted because you guys were down, right? Was it three zip you were down in the game? Yeah, we were losing three nothing. Yeah, I think a Vancouver fan fed me pizza the night before too. It might have been. <laughs> They'd oh, do I, something like that. Vancouver fans would do something like that. A little undercooked pepperoni yeah. there or something. Yeah. Um, we uh, we yeah we. I remember it was a late start Saturday, so the drink was absolutely crazy because everybody was day drinking or tailgating. Yeah, whole seventeenth whatever Red Mile, and uh, yeah, we were down three nothing before we knew it, but uh, we we rallied back and. Uh, yeah, that's that's my most memorable goal for sure. Um, so it was uh, the the stadium was 
was rocking. Uh, hopefully we got that back soon with the way times are now. That was uh, such a great moment. Um, Amazing. You know. Amazing. What do you think now? Um, talk, I'm sure you may have talked to some of the guys that were, you know, playing in the bubble and stuff. Um, two things, I guess. First thing is, how do you think the bubble affects just players' mentality and showing up to play every day? Because I, I think and the second part of that is you look at the Flames' performance in the bubble and people say, well, changes have to be made, trades have to be made. But do we put, like, kind of like it's a strange scenario, right? So can you, how much credence do you put in a performance in a weird playoff setup like that? So what what, what feedback are you getting from guys coming out of the bubble about what it's like and in, in, in the situation there? Yeah, the guys loved it. Well, okay. the Flames guys loved it. They embraced it. I think it's, you have to, you have to embrace it, right? There's no other option. And they, they said, like they made the most of you know their team bonding and and the way they played and you know I think the first few games is a feeling out for everybody. There's no fans. Uh, momentum in games is fans aren't included in that, and that's a big part I feel of of playoff hockey or hockey in general. When the fans going, it gets your juices going. Um, so you got to find that in a different way when there's no fans and within your bench. Uh, and that's where I, I feel like you know you know the extra block shot or the big hit um, in 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 the bubble, uh, I feel like a bench really, you know, you know, can clamp to that and, and use it to your advantage. You know, and in a real game, you'd have the fans helping you do that or, yeah. um, but you need that raw, raw on the bench because, you know, you kill a big penalty in a 20,000 seat stadium, you know, Calgary fans are going to let you know, yeah, we're, that's yeah. awesome. Let's go. Uh, where in a quiet stadium, you could ever have someone on the bench stand up, you're like, that, that's the way to go. Like, let's go now. It's a big kill, right? Yeah. So, like playing in Atlanta back in the day. Like, just is yeah. anyone here to see that or anybody knows? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, but they, yeah, I, th- I think it was hard for, for the families and, and, and that part. But I think once you're in there and once you're in the game, um, yeah, you, you make the best of it. You know, I don't think we can, I don't think anybody should make an excuse. This is the world we live in right now. And this is the only way we can get sports and uh, it's been great for, for everybody to watch. Uh, is it playoff hockey like it usually is? No, but I feel like the quality of the games and the intensity is there. And um, I think we should just appreciate that. And I think once you're in it, I'm sure as a player too, like you want to win, right? Like you're, you're, you know, you're not thinking about, I get it. You go out and warm up's pretty quiet and all that stuff. But once that puck's dropped and you got to go battle and win a battle in the corner or, you know, it's on, you're not, I don't think you're thinking about any of that other stuff. Would you agree? Oh, 100%. And the one thing they did say about the bubble that was awkward was you're playing these guys and you're, you're in a battle. And, and during a playoff series, like you would never talk to guys on the other team, let alone, you know, be in the same hotel. And they, they'd run into each other all the time, right? So right. Yeah, the battles, you know, the Matthew Kachuk hits Shifley and, you know, and, and then you're an elevator with some of the Jets teammates. Like it's, it's awkward, right? So yeah. I think there's just a lot of, uh, stone faces and awkwardness with that but they said, they said that was the only weird part but uh at the end of the day you, you it's the same for everybody and um you know i think they all had their own floors and um you know, they just had to deal with that what do you think now with the flames going forward obviously a lot of folks are calling for a big change um ward obviously is going to stay on as a head coach do you feel uh the the time has run its course here with this group. Do you think changes need to be made, or is it again? This was a one off, you know, situation in the bubble. How do you gauge it? What do you think? 
Yeah, you know what? It's hard for me to really say because you know a lot of those guys are my buddies and and right. I played with them. So, but at the end of the day, hockey's it's it's such a fine line between winning and losing, and the parity in the league so close. Um, you know, but when you don't win uh, and there's expectation, um, and you've had a number of years at it, you know, you're going to expect change. Um, so, I, I, if I was to guess, I think there's going to be some movement, and you know, there'll be some change just because that's. Uh, what happens in sports when when things don't go well? Um, I don't think they're as far off as everybody's saying, but um, you could probably say you know twelve teams are probably saying that right now. We're not that far off, so it's uh, it's it's a hard question to answer. Um, you know, you got to believe in the guys you have. But at the end of the day, you do have to you know, kind of change things up just to you know, give a fresh look. And um, you know, my old saying: if you can get in the playoffs and, and you have a, a hot goalie. Um, you have a chance, um, you know, but I think things have to kind of align at the right time. Um, you know, uh, the one year we played Anaheim in the playoffs and I felt like game was one and two, we, we, we all played them. Even game three, we all played them before you know, we were down three, nothing in a series. And yeah. Uh, look at that. I'm like, how's that happen? But, um, you can say that about Vegas right now too. You just, things aren't going right or the littlest thing can change a series. And, um, so that's the hard part about hockey. Like, you know, how many of these teams think they're Stanley Cup contenders when, you know, when there's eight teams, they all got to play each other in the second round. Uh, you know, four of them are going home, you know, yeah. trying to figure out what happened. So uh, to answer your question, uh, it would be easier to say what I think is going to happen. And I think there will be a few changes. Um, I don't know what, because that's, that's harder to do than just make happen. Um, but, you know, I think living in Calgary, you're hearing all this stuff that, that people want some change and um, I'd expect there to be something. Yeah. I hear you. Um, I wonder too, are the players aware of, you know, th- there's kind of this window of time, right? When you have guys on contract and you have, you know, guys are getting a little bit older. Are the players aware of that? Do they look at it that way of like, man, this group, we, we got to get something done here in the next year or two. Cause this is, you know, guys contracts are expiring. Someone else is going to retire. Do players talk about that kind of stuff? Or is that just stuff that, you know, fans kind of, talk about no player players talk about that it's um i think when you're younger in the league you you kind of take things for granted you think you're going to play forever as you get older you're very aware um i played on a lot of teams that are were rebuilding like i went through toronto rebuild and i came to calgary went through so I, you know your urgency is a little different um and you kind of see things but for sure all the players hear what's going on um, you know contract statuses of everybody. Um, players that say they don't know are lying. It's, uh, <laughs> it's out there right in front of us every single day. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, I think, you know, you you just take that for what it is. You know, um, I always remember early in my career, Gary Roberts said in the dress room, you know, never take any grant before you know it, you'll be, you know, in your last couple of years of the league and you only have so many chances. And I remember that right until the end of my career. And, and I remember saying that to young guys being like, don't take anything for granted. Um, you know, this, it ends quick. Uh, you know, not everybody can play for forever. So I think, uh, as a player, you know, as teammates, you, you try and get the most out of each other. Um, but I think when everybody's retired, they'll look back and, and a lot of people probably will have a lot of, you know, regret and saying, ah, we could have maybe done a little bit more with that group. Um, and sometimes it just doesn't work out. But in the moment, you're you're giving your all. So it's hard to, to put that on people, but uh, for sure that happens. 
Yeah, I'm sure. Okay, so let's go back to um, the Toronto trade. So you you get the you get word that you're going to Calgary. Be dead honest, dude. Are you going? All right, good. Time for a change. Or are you going? What the is going on? Like, what was walk me walk me through Matt stage and finding out he's going to Calgary, and what were the words that came out of your mouth? Yeah, I, I don't remember word for word. I was honestly, I was, it was an off day. I was an un, we'd lost the night before in Toronto to Vancouver all the time. Or we had an off day on Sunday, and I was just literally Sunday. I got to sleep in. Um, you know, I got to spend, we just moved into a new house, me and my wife, Katie, uh, we just built the house. We were in there for a couple months. So we just moved in, we, she made a breakfast and I was like, Oh, this is nice. And, um, my phone started buzzing, you know, around 11 AM. I just like, and right there, then and there a Sunday morning, uh, when your phone starts buzzing on an off day, you know, something's up. So, um, and it was weird because it, it trade wasn't announced right it just there was being in toronto it's just rumor 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 there's a press conference being announced but there was no trade announced just said you know leaves out a press conference and uh no players were named so uh, at that point i was like something's happening here you don't know where and and then all the rumors come out and then brian burke called me he was the gm of the leafs he told me i'm moving to, to calgary you know thank you for your services the the speech they always give and um and he couldn't even tell me who else was in the trade. So it just kind of a sit and wait thing and sitting there on the couch being like, I guess we're going to Calgary. <laughs> like we, built this house. we just built this house for a year and, and uh, we finally moved in and now we're going to Calgary and we're not even going to live in this house for very long. So, um, but in, in a way it did surprise me and it shocked me at the time and talking to Berkey because we have a great relationship. He didn't want to trade me, and, and I felt that way when I was there. Um, but I was becoming a, a free agent at the end of that season, and I knew the, the Leafs were going in a, in a rebuild direction, and I was a value, and they were trying to get draft picks or a, a damp enough, whatever they, were lo- whatever they were looking for. And um, so I thought maybe I would get traded um, at the deadline, not in January. Um, so it was a shock, but um, – I loved it after, um, but the first week was definitely a whirlwind and um, a shock. And I was excited to play with Jerome McGinley. I was like, oh, I want to play with Jerome McGinley and my buddy Mark Giordano. So in a way, it was like, you look at the excitement, but you know, seven years of playing for the team I grew up cheering for uh, coming to end just like that was, uh, was difficult. It was, uh, was hard. Um, and, it, and it took me a few years in Calgary, actually, to, to really get going as a player. I was kind of mentally not where I needed to be. And, and such a dynamic career, I look back, I regret that because I wish I, I came in with, with uh, you know, a better mindset, but there's no way of controlling that because there's so much emotion involved into getting traded. And I, I feel like that happens with every player, especially when you're somewhere for as long as I was in Toronto. Yeah, well, uh, Brian actually talked about that trade, actually, and how he didn't want to put you in that deal. And then he kind of had to. And uh, we talked about the whole concept of trading and that these are, you know, these are human beings who have lives and, and wives and children. And then you have to get up and go. So you're, I guess, are you leaving later that day or you're leaving the next day? It's not like, you know, you get traded in the off season, you have time to connect with that team. You can, you know, you're maybe going to a couple of golf tournaments, you know what I mean? Like you can kind of ease yourself into that culture, but like the next day, I mean, that, that was that how it worked for you? Like just literally get your sticks, let's go. It was like, it was crazy. Like, so it was Sunday morning, we got a call and I was on a flight six o'clock that night. Um, 
and then landed in Calgary. I think we landed at like nine or 10 at night. Uh, went right and did our medicals that night because we had a game the next day. We had a game Monday against Philadelphia in Calgary. So we didn't meet our team. We met our teammates Monday morning. And thankfully, I got traded with a couple other guys. So wasn't coming in solo. But um, yeah, you were in a dressing room, new people playing the next night, uh, new colors, new number, new equipment. Um, it's all these things. So it, it happens quick. It doesn't even give you time to think, really. Um, and, you know, sometimes that's good for people and sometimes it's not. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I just, it was, a, it was a tough transition for me, for sure. Uh, and my expectation when I got traded, because I was um, one of the, probably one of the key pieces coming the other way there, you know, I felt like there's three of us that were supposed to be part of the Flames future. And I was the one that ended up really staying a long time. Um, but, you know, there was a lot of pressure right away because, I came from Toronto. I've always been a two-way guy, and, and in Toronto, I was playing a little bit more power play because we had lost Matt Sandin and we were going through rebuilds. So when it came to Calgary, there was all this expectation that I was going to be the centerman for Jerome McGinley to finally play with, and um, you know. But I was I was never just like an all offensive type player, um, you know. So it, it kind of put pressure on me, and, and the expectation was way higher than than where it should have been. Um, but I put pressure on myself and then that affected my game. And uh, me and Brent Sutter didn't have the best relationship at the start. And uh, so it was just kind of, it was a tough situation. Um, and, you know, I, and I wish it just went differently and, and, you know, for sure from the start, but it ended up working out for, for my time in Calgary. But uh, you know, I was just kind of brought in as, as this offensive guy when that was never my game. I was always a two way guy and uh you know, but that's that's how the, the league works. Yeah, it's well too. And I guess they probably just put you in a hotel, right? So now you're living out of a hotel for probably weeks and weeks, and just like, wow, I just left yeah. my dream home, and now yeah. I'm at the uh, Sheridan downtown somewhere. What is it? The International. Remember that uh, hotel? Yeah, I do. <laughs> I do. Your yeah. circulation was not very good in that hotel. We got high enough in Calgary, and then we were put in the International. I was like, can I we go to the? I would have taken the show and <laughs> international had lots of space for us. We had that extra room, but, uh, right. Okay. Uh, yeah. I, I remember, uh, I remember moving to Calgary in Oh three and, uh, I dude, like after three weeks, I was like scratching. I was like itchy. I was like, man, I got a rash or something. And I realized someone's like, no dude, it's just hyper dry here. Your skin just like flakes off. If you're not putting on like buckets of lotion every day and just super hydrating, your skin's just going to fall off. So I was like, oh geez, I thought I had, I thought I had some kind of, I thought I was going to change my laundry detergent or something. I don't know what was going on. <laughs> I'm still like that. I still got to cream up where I get itchy. Oh, Even boy. the altitude, like you don't, like it's not Colorado, but it's still like you're of sea level and getting traded here and you're when you're playing 20 minutes a night like it it hits you <laughs> like you you notice that as a player big time you feel uh, like so not just as a one if you came as the road team you play one game it's not as noticeable when you're here every day practicing and playing two three games a week you you start noticing that um that's another reason i wanted to live in calgary in the offseason because i was like training in toronto and then coming to calgary there's an adjustment period too to, to the altitude yeah i'm sure i'm sure so you you retire you no inkling at all to go into coaching at all? Didn't want to be involved in that aspect of things where you're just like, nah, too much abuse, too much insecurity, packing up your bags every couple of years. Uh, did you think about it at all? 
Yeah, I still think about it. Um, you know, I just think I want to take a few years. You know, we've, you know, I've been on the road and traveling a lot. My kids are young. I don't want to be putting in. You know, the coaches put in tons of hours. That's a that's a grueling job. Uh, you know, mentally and, and on families. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm. You know, I'd like to help out in, in some sense uh, when an opportunity is there in a way. But uh, you know, I'm not ready to jump right in and. and and do that. Um, I'll just coach my five-year-old and uh, all the kids that he plays with right now and um, keep it local and uh, not do all the traveling yet. So if a kid is now uh, got aspirations, he's playing in Newfoundland, he's playing in Halifax or somewhere in Alberta or Ontario, and they want to get to that next level, what's some advice that you wish someone had given to you at some point at that age? Uh, what would you pass on to those guys or girls? The main, the number one two things number one you need to believe in yourself um if you don't believe in yourself it doesn't matter right uh, and it doesn't matter you know it's nice when other people believe in you for sure but it, that doesn't matter it's it's your belief in yourself that you can do whatever you you put your mind to um and when you get your opportunity you got to make it count um you're not going to keep you any opportunities you got to make that opportunity count um and then the other thing is you know treat people the way you want to be treated that's so simple in life like right? if you want to be successful in life treat people the way you want to be treated and um i know it's easy for me to say i play in the nhl a long time and um you know you try and be a good guy in the locker room but then they there's people that that are around you and what you do and you're around them a lot um and if you're not a good person and you don't treat people properly, um, people aren't going to give you the time of day. You know, your, your opportunities are going to be less and less. And um, so you, you just, you know, try and try and be a good person and, and put everything you can into what you believe in and, and into yourself and what you want to accomplish. And uh, good things will happen. And it's not always easy, but uh, stick with it. And, 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 you know, it'll happen. I'll add on this last question because Commodore and I talked about this real quick. Um, the concept of teams being really tight and close and, you know, you always hear that adage of like, oh, we're like brothers and, you know, they go on to win. And it's always winning teams who say that. Right. But I asked Mike, I'm like, do, do guys have to like each other? Like, is it because I've played on teams before where we were really close and we didn't win shit. And other teams were like it was kind of clicky and we actually went on a good run and did a lot of damage. So, you know, what what is your take on that in terms of like that team chemistry thing? How how organic is that? How much value do you put in it? I think it's important that you that you have chemistry as a team for sure. I don't think you have to be best friends, and uh, but there's got to be accountability within each other. And uh, and we talk about like you know they're like brothers to me. Um, well, yeah, they are like brothers to you. When a brother's not doing his job or doing something, you gotta let him know. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Also, you got so it, it. Actually, it, when, you, when you when you hear the word brother, I think you know, I think you you gotta take that in. Sometimes brothers punch each other in the face, right? That's just sometimes so, it not always rosy, and, and you know, you know, we're all uh, going to get along. So there's definitely that. But you know, I look back throughout my career, and, and I share a great bond with every team I had. I, I like I was in locker rooms that were an absolute mess, but uh, you know, as a whole, that you know, it's still you know the guys you know get along and and you know work together. So. Um, you know, sometimes there's outliers where you hear stories or stories come out. Um, but uh, but this way, when you're winning, everything seems to go a lot smoother and, and rosier and um, less comes out. And those teams are always the closest teams. But uh, I'd say majority of teams, 
you know, are the same, you know, we're all kind of cut from the same, you know, you're, you're, you grow up part of a team, you kind of, it becomes normal to you. So I don't think there's too much uh, into that. Um, but I think respect and, and hold each other accountable is definitely a big thing as success and uh, you know, it can't be a country club, um, but it's got to be fun and, uh, and, and hard. It can't be easy. I hear you, man. What you're basically saying is there have to be some trips to George Street together for people uh, or Red Mile. I mean, you got to bond somehow, right? You got you to gotta get out there and uh, do it. Um, all right, dude. Thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate your time and uh, take care and all the best. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, buddy. Cheers. There it is. My chat with Mr. Matt Stajan. <clears throat> that guy, um, really good dude. You can just tell when people are nice people, and he uh, he just seems like a really, really nice guy. And um, I hope you enjoyed that episode, and uh, share it with your friends. Spread it along there to folks. And um, yeah, man, I'm off to work. By the time you listen to this, I'll be back outside with people just saying hello to strangers and probably freaking them out because they're like, get away from me. And I'm like, no, I, you don't understand. I was two weeks in uh I wasn't allowed to talk to any, anyone. So, all right. See you later. Um, I'll be doing that probably while you're listening to this. Next week, I got another amazing guest. So make sure you drop on back. Make sure you subscribe to the Generators Podcast. There's a ton of episodes coming up. Uh, next week, I have rock and roll man himself, Mr. Sam Roberts of the Sam Roberts Band is going to be joining me. Another fantastic conversation. And uh, so, yeah, come on back and check that out. Anyway, be well. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate all the support. And uh, have a fantastic week. And we'll see you again next week on the Generators Podcast.